1: And I'm Marshall Lichty, and this is episode 164 of The Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Megan Xavier about the Byzantine advertising rules imposed on lawyers, plus Megan's chatbot and a podcast.
2: Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, FreshBooks, and Ruby Receptionists. We appreciate their support, and we will tell you more about them later in the show. So, Marshall, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sam. (laughs) Marshall is taking over the role of editor-in-chief at Lawyerist, and I thought it'd be fun to have him on the show today. We're not replacing Aaron, but he may take a day off here and there. And I'm not replacing Sam. I'm just (laughs) (laughs) kind of his replacement. Yeah, you know, same old, same old, sort of, but not. So now that the scorecard is out and we're back from tech show and we're recovering, we've got feedback and it's been awesome. And I just wanted to read a really cool reaction to it that Dan Lear gave us totally unsolicited. He said he just took the lawyer's small firm scorecard. It was well thought out. Each question is packed with meaning. Answering honestly and thoroughly is no small feat. I think every small business, not just law firms, could benefit from taking it. Thanks so much for your comment, Dan. That really made us feel like we might have done a good thing there. It was really cool to hear. Uh, And actually, at his prompting, we all took it as a team. And uh, I suppose you may raise an eyebrow at it, but we all gave ourselves an A. But we're going to start using the small firm scorecard for the lawyer's scorecard as well, which is kind of cool. But Marshall, I, your story about getting here involves you beta testing the scorecard and getting a bad grade, by which I mean giving yourself a bad grade. So I thought maybe we could talk to people about what it's like to get a bad grade on the scorecard and what that means and what you should think about it. Right?
1: Dan's tweet really resonated with me. He said, answering honestly and thoroughly is no small feat. And it's not. If you're really reflecting on your business, there are some questions in there that are hard And you maybe have spent a lot of time trying to grow your business, trying to improve your business, trying to improve your client service, trying to use technology to leapfrog other firms and head into the future of law practice. And when you take the scorecard, sometimes it looks like maybe you aren't doing that exactly (laughs) as well as you thought. And I'm not mad about it. I'm not angry about it, but I sure uh, reflected on it. But it prompted
2: you to take action.
1: It did. And incidentally, here's the action that I took. Um, it (laughs) It led to a really interesting conversation with Aaron where I had to kind of decide whether to persevere or pivot, in the words of the Lean Startup. Right? I had to decide whether I had the bandwidth to make meaningful changes within my old organization or whether I felt like I didn't have the resources there uh, or the bandwidth to do that. And ultimately, it resulted in me making a choice that it was time to move on. And one of the things I'm really excited about in being with Lawyerist is being able to tell that story and say to people, listen, I have been there. I have tried to make these improvements and it's hard. It's really hard. And the scorecard helps you benchmark yourself against where we think really successful law firms ought to be, and then where you are. And we give you real practical tools to move forward. And that's what I love about being with lawyers now is I think we can change the world and we can change (laughs) your business. We believe that to our core.
2: You know, one of our, one of the other beta testers is, uh, she emailed me, so I don't want to, I don't want to betray her name without talking to her, but she was also a law school friend who was sort of your classic straight A student um, and she sort of walked me through her thought process on realizing that she just gave herself an F on it. Um, and it was it was pretty funny. It was sort of like the the stages of denial and acceptance. <laughs> and, and I thought it was good. And and I, I think those stages are hopefully what prompt most people to take action. So we'll see. If you haven't taken the scorecard, please do. It's at lawyerist.com slash scorecard. It's free. We ask for your email address so we can send you all of the raw score data so that you can take action on it. And we are really excited to start getting a better picture of the solo and small firms through the scorecard and uh, and watch people improve. So go ahead and do that. Today, we've got a quick sponsored podcast with Sarah Schaff from Headnote and then my interview with Megan.
0: Hi, my name is Sarah Schaff, and I am the CEO of Headnote. I am also an attorney that practiced for six years and was most recently at Google prior to leaving to start my own company. Headnote is the new best practice for solo and small firms that want to start accepting online payment without changing any of their current systems or processes.
2: Thanks for coming here, Sarah. And let's talk briefly because I know one of Headnotes' things is you're really trying to encourage lawyers to adopt e-check payments as opposed to credit cards. So maybe start out with what's the difference? What are we talking about?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So e-check is a form of ACH that's been around since 1974. And it's essentially The safest, most secure way that you can get paid or pay somebody online. It has something that uh, is actually being used by banks and and companies all over the world for for decades, Uh, but it's becoming a newer concept to consumers in in the peer-to-peer payment vertical. Uh, It's something that for a long time was the process that would require a user to provide their routing number and their bank number, to then wait for a period of days for micro deposits to appear in their account, then return back to the platform where they wanted to make the payment to verify those amounts. And it was, you know, a multi-day process. But one of the things we've done at Headnote is completely change that process. So you can now pay with an e-check direct from your bank account in under 10 seconds.
2: Yeah. And I have to say, like, I've, I've tried this and essentially the way it works is, uh, when you go to an invoice, you click on payment, and you select your bank, and then you log in, you enter your username and password to your bank, and then complete the transaction. Yeah, it was super smooth, which is not what I was expecting given some of my past experiences with eChecks.
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what we went for when we kind of set out to to build that new experience and kind of revolutionize the way that that eCheck is being experienced by lawyers and their clients.
2: So are there advantages to echeck uh, apart from it just being now a pretty convenient alternative?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the number one advantage is cost. So it's a it's going to cost less for lawyers for anybody that accepts an e-check payment versus a credit card payment. Um, So the number one advantage there is it's just the price difference. Also, it can be a faster payment time than a credit card. Today, ACH can be processed with the e-check process in one day. Obviously, over paper check, there's a variety of of benefits because Mm -hmm. it can Mm -hmm. happen instantaneously and you don't have to deal with actually going to the bank. And one of the reasons that we're so passionate about making it so accessible for lawyers and their clients is kind of the way that paper checks have dominated the legal industry for decades, this is kind of a modern version of what your clients and and law firms are already used to doing.
2: So just to be clear, e-checks may be faster and cheaper and have some advantages, but Headnote absolutely still processes credit cards in case clients or lawyers prefer it.
0: Absolutely. So we do offer both and the credit card process is super easy, very similar to what you experienced when you paid with e-check, but... Like we said, we also want to make sure that we do whatever is going to help the lawyers, especially solo and small firms, bottom line and cash flow. And so offering a lower price alternative that is just as modern as, as a credit card payment is something that we love and that we work really hard to keep making better and better.
2: So I don't usually go into a lot of detail about our sponsor's products, but I was skeptical when you and I first talked uh, about the onboarding experience that you said Headnote had that was so great. And so when you and I got off the phone, I decided, well, I'm going to send Aaron Street, my business partner, uh, an invoice for a thousand bucks. And I think it took me about five minutes tops for him to be opening the email and entering his payment details. And then he canceled the transaction and I still haven't gotten my thousand (laughs) bucks, which I'm a little disappointed about. But really, like if you're a lawyer who is still sitting on paper checks and paper invoices and trying to figure out how to collect with credit cards and e-checks, man, what a good option. It's worth a try.
0: Thanks, Sam. Yeah. I mean, you and I have talked about it, like you said, and as a lawyer myself, you know I, I grew up also working at my parents' law firms. There was, my mom was a solo, and my dad had a small firm. So, I know what it's like to try to get somebody to get you to onboard to a new software, and and what a painful process that can be, even if you know it can help you down the road. So, as we, you know, have been improving and iterating on this product, the the number one thing is like this has to be as painless as possible for a firm, whether they're a one man shop or or multi firm with administrators. Um, as easy as possible. So a five minutes or less is kind of what we aim for. And, and I'm glad that you had that experience when you tried it.
2: Well, and if you sign up in March 2018, if you're listening <laughs> to this later, your first $50 in transaction fees will be waived, which means you'll collect 100% of what you bill. And if you want to find out why more law firms are switching to e-checks, you can go to headnote.com lawyerist to download an ebook with more information. Thanks so much for being with us, Sarah.
0: Yeah, Sam, appreciate it.
3: I'm Megan Xavier, and I am a lawyer for other lawyers. I represent primarily California lawyers facing ethics investigations and prosecutions. I also write, speak, and now podcast on legal ethics issues and advise lawyers who want to incorporate into their practice new methods of delivering legal services.
2: And I guess if people want to know more about your practice, they should probably go back and listen to the previous one where we talked a lot about how you built this practice, how you have basically done it virtual, and, and all that good stuff. So I think we're going to skip some of that today. But the bottom line is you, like you said, you're a lawyer for other lawyers. You do ethics defense primarily in California, which is cool. And you did just start a podcast, which I have been listening to. And it's really good. So...
3: Oh, thank you. So
2: where can people listen to your podcast if they want to?
3: Well, it's on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and it's called Lawyers Gone Ethical.
2: And uh, you're working with Nicola Bood, right? Who's one of my favorite podcast guests.
3: I am, and she is amazing.
2: (laughs) Very cool. So is she helping you produce it, or is she coaching you? Like, how does that... What is she doing for you?
3: She basically helped me from, hey, I have this idea, I should do a podcast, until the point that it's actually a real thing. So she's guided me on tech, she's guided me on topics, um, a bit of coaching on how to present it in terms of, you know, reminding people to subscribe and such. She's helping me with content, finding guests. She's doing the editing. She's doing the cover art, the social oh, cool. media posts. I mean, she's kind of doing, <laughs> she's doing all the things there was no way I was going to have time for. Yeah,
2: but what she's not doing is being on the podcast and you, uh, you're a natural host. It's really interesting. And and so if listeners are interested, if you're searching for other podcasts to check out, Lawyers Gone Ethical is a really, really good start. It's on episode three as I'm recording this. So you can catch up quickly. All
3: right. Thanks. Em. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So one thing I did want to catch up on about your practice is that since we last spoke, um, you have been employing a chat bot on your website uh, that looks like it was built by another TBD Law alum like you are, Tom Martin, I think, right?
3: That's right. Yeah. Tom Martin from LawDroid put together that bot.
2: And so what does it do exactly?
3: It's designed to help people navigate through the other information that is contained elsewhere on the site, but through sort of a different a different mode of delivering that information, one of the things that I feel I've learned a lot from TBD law and and my fellow TBD lawyers, um, I've so much from people is just how the delivery of information needs to be provided in many different ways. People learn different ways. People navigate differently. People's brains work differently. I would go to my law firm website and click through the menus and read these different pages. Some people don't think that way or want to go in that way. They want to ask. And so the chatbot is there. So people who think a different way can go in and say, Hey, I want to know, do you offer ethics defense? And it will answer that question mm-hmm. for you.
2: And it will deliver you the pages that are relevant.
3: Exactly. Cool. It directs you to the different portions of the site that have the information that you need. It also can set up consultations, which is an automated process through my website, but you can start with the bot and get through the consultation booking process that way.
2: Very cool. Has it been a good experiment? Are you going to keep doing it and it's working well?
3: I am definitely going to keep doing it. I really like that it provides that option for people as they go on there. And we see the interaction, you know, every time someone interacts with the bot, then we get information as to what are they looking for? How are they using it? And so it gives us insight into our users. So I'm definitely going to keep that on there. Very cool.
2: So you've got a new podcast, we've talked a little bit about your practice. But today, we're going to talk about advertising rules. And I've listened to your episode two of your podcast, where you talk with Aaron Gerstenzang about some places where lawyers trip up on the ethics rules. And as part of that, you were talking about some advertising issues. And one of the things that you both sort of complained about, which I think is totally justified, is just how Byzantine the advertising rules have become. Is there a way to fix that?
3: There has to be. I mean, that's, that's my my initial answer is there has to be a way to fix it. Our rules are so backwards as to how we do business today. I mean, they just don't address the way we operate. They don't address the way the public views lawyers and professional services that they're buying they are just so outdated that it's it's really kind of an embarrassment. So there has to be a way. Um, I know it's been proposed by you know people who know what they're talking about in the legal industry, um, not just. Being flippant about it, but but some really good minds out there have said, what if we just eliminated the rules completely and had one rule that said, don't be misleading?
2: Yeah, I, I've seen that at least from Josh King at who is Avos GC has proposed that, but I'm sure he's not the only one, and it makes a lot of intuitive sense to me.
3: Absolutely, yeah. Josh King is is definitely the the first thing that comes to mind, and and I know that that's a really attractive option, but. I can't help but think we are all lawyers regulating other lawyers. And if it's as simple as don't be misleading, can you imagine how bloated the guidance could get?
2: Yeah, it's not like misleading is, is an obvious term with an easy definition.
3: It's not. And really, the advertising rules are intended to get to that simple concept. Right? If you read the, the lengthy and detailed rules and comments to the rules and ethics opinions from any state, if you had to boil it down to one sentence, the entire body of rules comes down to don't be misleading. And so it's tempting to think that that could actually be the rule. I don't think that that's actually a real
2: answer Mm -hmm, because I I
3: think we need a bit more. I think we need a bit more guidance than that. One
2: of my favorite examples is uh, when we had the Texas law hawk (laughs) on our podcast, he talked about in order to get his videos approved in Texas, the lawyer's board there needs to approve your video advertisements before you can publish them. And he had to, first he had to, they had to be educational or if there isn't an educational element, he didn't see a way to get them approved. And, but more ridiculously, The rules required him to put it on a VHS and mail a copy or probably it was probably two copies to the lawyer's board or something like that. And that's just ridiculous. Nobody even has a VHS player anymore. And, you know, eventually I think they agreed to accept a DVD. But I can imagine somebody at the lawyer's board whose job it is to have an old dusty VHS player and reviewing lawyer videos. That just seems silly.
3: Yeah, that is. And, And when we have a rule like that, I mean, that's just a really good illustration, right? We can all relate to it. I passed a, a TV with a built-in VHS player in a friend's garage recently and my kids looked at it and they said, what is that? <laughs> and I was just like, you actually don't know, do you? Um, and she said, oh, I'm keeping that because I have these old Disney VHS tapes from when I was a kid and I wanted to show them to the kids. And I thought, you know, they're probably on Netflix yeah, exactly. or <laughs> Amazon streaming. You don't need that. So a rule like that, though, so is just a really good illustration of what Other rules also amount to, which is something so arcane, it doesn't even make sense anymore. Right. There's no reason why a Texas lawyer shouldn't be able to email a link or an MP4 video to the board and have them look at it. Yeah.
2: But I suppose that raises sort of a strategic problem which has two sides. Like on the one hand, no matter how ridiculous they are, the rules are the rules and you have to follow them. Unless you decide to mount a constitutional challenge, you have to follow the rules, whether even if they're stupid. And on the other side, the uncertainty created by some of those obviously bad or outdated or arcane rules sort of causes people to censor their own marketing, right?
3: That's exactly right. I think that because the rules can be so ridiculous and difficult to comply with. I mean, think that VHS one is a great example, right? At one time, when it was probably new, it wasn't a big deal. You had a big camera on your shoulder and you recorded this VHS tape and you mailed it in like America's Funniest Home Videos used to show a big envelope, you know, mail in your VHS tape. And so, at one time, it wasn't hard. And it was
2: probably only relevant to like firms with big advertising budgets who were bringing in professional video teams.
3: Well, that's probably as opposed to
2: everybody with an iPhone.
3: That's very true. So when that was a reasonable thing to comply with, people would. But as it got outdated and it got more onerous, the average lawyer looking at that rule today often says, "I can't comply with that." Whether it's the VHS one or something a little more relevant. people are actually trying to do like pay-per-click ads, which are supposed to have certain disclaimers on every advertisement, right? People will say, well, I just can't comply with that. And so it has this chilling effect where they say, well, I can't run an ad. or I can't make a video. So how
2: do you you analyze that problem and and how do you move forward if it's something that you feel like you ought to be able to do?
3: Well, there's always a risk in not complying to the letter of the rule. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of lawyers are so risk averse that we look at those rules and we say, okay, I can't, I can't do that. I don't have a videotape machine. I can't mail this in. Well, take the, I,
2: take the pay-per-click campaign.
3: Right. I can't have a pay-per-click ad that has all of this disclaimer language it's supposed to have. It would fill the ad and then some and forget even putting the advertising words. So I'm just not going to do it. And I look at that and I say, well, let's find creative solutions. You can't help but the fact that the technology today and the way we do business today isn't in compliance with those rules, right? They butt heads. Mm -hmm. And so instead of doing nothing, look at the spirit of the rule. Look at what the rule is asking you to do. Um, In California, for instance, it's important that every advertisement have the lawyer who's responsible for the ad identified. They must be a California lawyer. Hmm. So you have a pay-per-click ad and there's not enough room to say, attorney Megan Xavier is responsible for this ad. Because right there, that's my whole ad, right? Well, then make sure that what it clicks to, you know, when you click on that ad, that it goes to a page that clearly states it. Yeah. You know, do think creatively about what they're trying to get you to do, and find ways to make it happen. The fact is, the state bar is probably not going to come prosecute you because your pay per click ad didn't have that piece in it. When you can say, well, here's what I did to do everything I could to comply with the
2: rule. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you're accepting a measure of risk, and so you you have to just be okay with that. But if you're not if you're not trying to mislead people and you're being obvious about that. Then hopefully that's enough.
3: That's what I, the approach that I take. I always think that you're making sure you have the information. You're not being misleading. You're using the technology and the, the guidelines of the available space in a way that's as honest and straightforward as possible. And you're taking the rule and you're finding a way to incorporate it in so that you're not just flouting it. You know, you're not leaving off who's responsible for the ad completely but you're having to put it on, say, the second page, right? When you click on the ad, it's on the second page. Well, if you sent a mailer, it could be on the back, yeah, right? It could be on page two. So why not, if the equivalent is online, you have to click to get to the next page and there's the information. I
2: guess another piece of it is probably like, don't do things that are likely to piss people off. (laughs) So like I'm thinking of, uh, I can't remember what state it was, but personal injury lawyers wanted to be able to text message people. Um, which is like one of my nightmare scenarios is getting text message spam as I'm lying on the gurney in an ambulance or an emergency room. Uh, and I think what came out of that is either the court or the ethics board felt similarly that this was an icky and awful thing. And they I think the, the result was they said, OK, you can send text messages, but they have to include the entire text of the disclaimer that you're required to send which re- would have required like eleven text messages to send the whole thing or something. And that's another absurd requirement, but it's one that I kind of cheer because it avoids one of my nightmare scenarios. So
3: <laughs> texting <laughs> but- <laughs> the injured just you're right, it sounds terribly icky. And one way that that's been handled is treating texting the same as a phone call or an in-person solicitation because it's real time mm-hmm. as much as you know going into online chat rooms. And trying to chat people up was real time. And so that, too, was treated like a phone call. And so there's actually a good example sort of of what we're talking about. You have a technology that wasn't imagined when the rules were created. You aren't allowed to make a phone call. You aren't allowed to show up on someone's doorstep. We know that. You are allowed to send a letter. So where does texting fall Mm. in that continuum? Well, at some point before any ethics regulators started talking about it, lawyers were sitting in their offices saying, well, I want to text. Where does that fall? And they're having to make a judgment. Some of them chose to send the texts. Yeah. Right. And they said, well, it's more like it's more like writing a letter. And some of them, probably a lot of them said the rules don't say anything about this. I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. Well, the ones who sent texts, they may have prompted the ethics regulators to say something about it and make a rule or issue some guidance. So now we all know where it falls. But it's unlikely. Can't swear to this because I haven't done that you know, individual state research, but it's unlikely that someone would have been in any sort of significant trouble with their ethics regulator as a result of sending that text. There was no rule specifically addressing it. Yeah. If you make a calculated risk and you know, hey, this is possible, I may get a letter from the bar saying stop. Okay, I can live with that. Yeah. You know, I can live with a letter saying stop, then you can try it and you can push it. And you've got to be willing to take that risk. But I think that we should be taking reasonable and calculated risks when the rules don't address something that's very common in the practice of business whether it's you know texting is like i said i think i agree with you it's icky but pay-per-click ads that's that's not icky right and we all do it and we all see them every time we go online
2: so we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and when we come back we'll keep talking about this because we're right in the middle of something and i want to keep going
4: did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. LawPay. Being a self-employed lawyer is hard enough, which is why dealing with your day-to-day paperwork on top of it all shouldn't have to be. FreshBooks makes ridiculously easy-to-use cloud-based time and billing software that will help you work smarter, get paid faster, and become more organized. With FreshBooks invoicing, you can create and send polished professional invoices effortlessly in mere seconds. FreshBooks can set you up to receive payments online, which can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. You can track your time either by using their mobile app or your desktop, meaning you'll always know what work you did, when you did it, and who you did it for. There's also a super handy deposit feature so you can invoice for a payment up front when you're kicking off a project. To feel the full impact of how FreshBooks can change the way you deal with your paperwork, FreshBooks is offering our listeners a 30-day free trial. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section.
2: Ruby Receptionist is a live, remote receptionist service that is dedicated to helping lawyers win clients and build trust one happy caller at a time. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby's friendly, professional receptionists ensure exceptional client experiences by answering calls live in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, collecting new client intake, addressing common questions, making outbound calls for you, and more, just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. More importantly, they sound like they're sitting in your office. For a special offer, visit callruby.com lawyerist2018 or call 844-715-7829. That's 844-715-RUBY. Okay, we're back. So we've talked about, you know, don't chill your own speech by looking at the rules. But we've sort of jumped past the part where you actually know what the rules are. And it sounds like, I mean, as Byzantine as the rules are, like mistake number one is, is probably not knowing that.
3: I would agree. I think everyone needs to read not only the rule itself, because you know, most states follow the model rules, and California is not significantly different in its rule. Don't be misleading. There's certain requirements to it, but also read all of the comments mm-hmm. and read the ethics opinions in your state about them because there are little things that they will insist on and you can get tripped up. And to simply ignore them. Is really a mistake. For example, in California, if you want to advertise that you have another language spoken in the office, there are certain requirements Hmm. of how you present that. If the lawyer is not the one who speaks the other language, there are requirements of how you present it. That's the sort of thing that you would be foolish not to know if you intend to advertise such a thing. So Everyone should read their rules and all the little details so that if you're making a calculated risk, it's actually calculated. and It's not just a foolhardy risk yeah. where you throw an ad out there going, eh, I'm not really sure of the rule, but that's not misleading. That should be fine. And in fact, you're violating some <laughs> technical requirement that's obvious to prove. So
2: since we're on the subject, I'm how should we think about uh, ethics board opinions? Uh, and maybe this differs from state to state, but it, it was my understanding that they're just that, they're opinions. You take them under advisement, you take them as guidance. But if an opinion says don't do X and you do X, that doesn't automatically mean that you violated the rule, right?
3: It doesn't automatically mean it, but I would caution anyone who has an on-point ethics opinion not to directly violate it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's going to be used if you are prosecuted as very strong evidence that you knew you shouldn't be doing it and yet you did it anyway.
2: Yeah. So uh, I, I feel like another advertising issue or marketing issue that is becoming really important, and I, I literally just had a podcast about this with Guy Sakalakis and Kelly Street, is testimonials. And uh, it seems like lawyers are still trying to figure out how these work. In our in our lawyers Insider Facebook group, there was a recent conversation that, you know, got into an argument about whether or not testimonials are valuable or not. And, I mean, I think what we know from Yelp and Amazon is, They are. People want them. People rely on testimonials, reviews. Um, They want to know what other people think about the people that they're considering doing business with. So I think that's pretty resolved. But how should lawyers use them and what are some of the mistakes lawyers use when they do?
3: Yeah, I think you can't underestimate the power of reviews. Everyone goes online looking for them. So people need to make sure that when they're using them, they're doing it properly and not violating the ethics rules. You can usually find some guidance in the state rules or ethics opinions about them, they're a big enough issue that they've usually been addressed. But I would say one of the most important things is to use them. Yeah. You know, don't, <laughs> don't don't ignore their power and don't ignore how important they are by just saying, I really don't understand how to, I'm just not going to do it. Um, so that to me is a mistake number one that people make is not using them. Which
2: kind of goes back to chilling your own speech that we we're just talking about with any advertising strategy.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. And I think there's a few reasons people don't use them when they don't. Ethics is part of it. I think there's also a huge fear of asking for them. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's really scary. I think that some people are afraid of getting a bad one, of asking for a review from someone you think is going to give a good one, and then finding out they gave you a bad one. But there are tools for that. I'm sure you talked about that with Guy. Yeah. You know, so there's tools to, to guard against the bad review. But asking for them is important. If you're going to use something a client has said about you in your marketing materials, it needs to be something they've agreed to let you use. And so that's part of it. Asking for the review at all and asking for permission to use their words. Sometimes clients really want to remain anonymous. Yeah. I certainly have that in my practice. <laughs> I mean, especially if I've been successful and no one knows there was ever an issue because we got it closed non-publicly. They don't really want their name on my website that I helped them get a bar complaint closed. Right? Is it
2: worth publishing an anonymous review then?
3: You know, it's. I think it has less power because mm-hmm. people doubt them. They think maybe you made them up, which is another thing not to ever do with a review you know, being anonymous, it, it doesn't have the same power as, oh, so-and-so, you know, Joe Smith lawyer down the street, he says this. Instead, it's, oh, anonymous. Well, mm-hmm. is that even a real person? I still think it's better than not having a review at all. And sometimes you can describe them instead of just anonymous, ask your client, can I put you down as, you know, lawyer with 40 years experience? Something that's identifying enough to make people, first of all, think it's real, um, but also give give them some credibility without revealing their identity.
2: At one point in my practice, I had included sort of a, a testimonial release, kind of a provision in my retainer agreement. And before I ever actually used that, I decided, even though I had a short, clear retainer agreement, I went over every provision with everyone at the outset, I think I decided that people probably can't appreciate what they're giving me permission to do at the outset of the representation. Um, I don't know if I was being overly cautious about that or not, but my assumption is that you should ask people for a review or a testimonial near in time to when you're going to use it, and you should tell them exactly how you're planning to use it.
3: I would agree with that. I've seen releases like that in retainer agreements, and I just don't think that people are thinking at the time they sign on with you that something nice they say about you is now going to be disclosed as a testimonial. I think it's appropriate, even though it will reduce how many reviews you get. Um, I think it's appropriate to ask someone at the time they're giving that review, which is usually at the close of your representation. Yeah. Maybe it's along the way if there's been some huge victory, but usually it's part of the closing process. And you say, you know, I hope that you've been happy with the service you've received. And if you'd like to submit a review, we would appreciate that. But getting that That permission at the time they're giving the review, I think makes a lot more sense. I mean, if you think about it from a business perspective, do you want to go on someone's website whose service you've used and see your name and something you said and go, oh, they just use what I said. I didn't know that. No,
2: they better be expecting to see it and happy that it's there. Yes. <laughs> the last thing you want is somebody arguing with you over whether or not you had permission to use their review, which kind of indicates how they actually feel about you at that point. So.
3: That's very true. And really the the other ethics piece of testimonials is how you respond to bad ones. Mm. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a huge issue that we see people getting into all kinds of trouble by revealing client confidences or arguing with people about bad reviews. The ethics actually comes in even more with responding to reviews than it does in posting them or, or getting them in the first place.
2: Well, and I, I guess I'd like you to say a little bit more about that. I mean, I know you just talked about it with Aaron on your own podcast, but like lawyers, and maybe, maybe it's unfair to say lawyers in general, but we see a lot of evidence of lawyers having ridiculous almost comical overreactions to negative reviews that they find online. Inevitably, they make themselves look more ridiculous and incompetent by their response than the review ever could have painted them.
3: Completely. That's exactly what they do. I don't know if it's <laughs> that we are an insecure bunch as a, as a whole, and so we just can't take criticism, or we just think that's so unfair. Maybe we would find the same thing if we were talking about dentists. I don't know. But it does seem like lawyers have these crazy, huge reactions to some of the negative reviews. And the problem is that people react by you know sitting down and typing up a response. Mm-hmm. They, they see the, the review and they think they have to immediately respond and they do on their own and then they can't take it back. And some of the things that they'll do are, for example, revealing confidences. That's a big one. Someone will have submitted a negative review and they may write back, well, I could have won your case if you hadn't... You know, fill in the blank. Like, yeah. Some horrible thing. It's like, oh, I can't believe you just did that. Or disclosing something like, a settlement amount that was supposed to be confidential. You know, it's a negative Oh yeah, review. like I got
2: you $10,000, what are you griping about? Exactly,
3: yeah. exactly. And you're right, people really make idiots of themselves. They'll go on and, and put some long string about, but I did this for you and I did this and you were so ungrateful. And and really the temper tantrum the lawyer throws is way worse than what was said in the original negative review. So you
2: dropped this a minute ago and and didn't follow up on it, but do lawyers really post fake testimonials on their websites?
3: It, it has been known to happen. Yes. Kidding me?
2: That's ridiculous. You know, do you, like, do you have an example? Because I'm now I'm really curious about this.
3: Well, it's that that insecurity, right? And so now everybody else seems to have a post out there with with their testimonials, and people are getting these good reviews, and I need to say something. And so they they'll have friends go on and post for them, which they were never clients, mm-hmm. um, or the anonymous. You know, like if it's just on your website. It's not through Google or it's not through Avo where someone has to have an account to log in and, and give information. It's just text on their website. Sure, people absolutely will make those up sometimes. And
2: I guess a friend's recommendation could be fine, like Jane Lawyer is a great friend and she's honest and... Uh, diligent and cares and you should hire her to be your lawyer yeah
3: that would be fine. Would probably
2: be fine because it's not trying to fake that she was a client
3: that would be completely fine that's just about who you are that's like a character mm-hmm. reference but if it's oh she got me a lot of money in my case and she was you know such a fierce fighter in court but there was never a case right yeah you know, that and again it's one of those things are you ever really going to be prosecuted for that unlikely on its own, but if you have issues with the state bar, they will go looking and they will, you know, try and dredge more things up. And if they find evidence of something like that or you know, someone in your office reports you, I've seen bar complaints filed by former admins who say, hey, I think you should look at this lawyer's practice, then that can definitely come in. And that just hurts your character so much before your regulator. I mean,
2: I guess part of me wants to circle back to if we change the rule to don't be misleading. I mean, that should that should be a bright line. Don't lie on your website or anywhere in public, you know, anywhere, if you can, that's just part of being a lawyer, like don't dip into the trust funds. Don't lie. Don't punch the judge. (laughs) You know, like these should be bright lines that every lawyer knows not to cross. And if they're crossing them now, if misleading, this isn't clear enough, then maybe it's not even about the rules. Maybe they're just lawyers who aren't fit to practice. I don't know.
3: Well, that's sort of the moral character determination of being admitted in the first place. But the standard seems to change a lot once you've actually been admitted. Once you're admitted, then there has to be a rule you're violating, and there has to be you know, something specific to prosecute yeah. you on.
2: Well, and I suppose maybe it's the Byzantine nature of the rules that makes it feel like following them is about technicalities, not about the spirit. Um, I can definitely see that. I, when I was studying for the professional responsibility exam, I came to the conclusion that the rules didn't have a dang thing to do with morality or what's right and wrong. They had a lot to do with following the rules.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of lawyers feel that way. And so if they... You know, go the opposite extreme where I was saying some people never read the rules. Mm -hmm. Some look at the rules as this is all I have to do. As long as I'm putting my name on there as the lawyer responsible and I'm putting this disclaimer that I'm supposed to put, I can make the rest of it up. And no, you can't because there's still that overarching, don't be misleading concept Mm -hmm. in all of the rules. So
2: since we're back to clarity in the rules, is there any movement afoot to change this? I mean, I read blog posts about it. I see people commenting on, you know, what's good and bad about the current state of the rules. But is there any reason to hope that they may change in the near future?
3: I think there's reason to hope. The APRIL, which is the Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers, did a big study and report on how the rules, the advertising rules specifically, um, should be changed. California has had its commission working the past couple of years on how to change the California rules to be more like the model rules. And in that discussion, there was definitely a discussion about taking away California's record-keeping requirement for advertising, which is terribly onerous and arcane.
2: And sum it up for us real quick. You
3: have to keep for several years a copy of every advertisement that exists for your firm and today that means that every time you edit your website you need to have a new copy and you know that was intended for yellow pages ads once a year and mailings and billboards it was not intended for electronic media that constantly changes your facebook feed change every time it changes could be argued that you need to keep a copy of it so there has been some discussion and that's been on the chopping block so I'm, i'm hopeful that Even though we move at a snail's pace, eventually these rules will be modified into something more in keeping with the way business is conducted today.
2: Well, let's keep our fingers crossed. Megan, if people want to find you online, where's the best place for them to go?
3: These days, Twitter is a great place to interact with me. Um, I'm at Xavier Law. You can also find me on my website, which is XavierLaw.com. My podcast, Lawyers Gone Ethical, or shoot me an email, Megan at XavierLaw.com.
2: Very cool. We'll put all those links in the show notes as well. So thanks for being with us
4: today, Megan. Thank you, Sam. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The views expressed by the
2: participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.